morning, church family. Today I'm reading from Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered them, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings its seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and my mother. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Wyoming Church of Christ. And I hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, obviously, it's, it's great news that we can be gathering together in some way uh, sometime soon. And so, as Rob said, uh, we'll keep you posted on that. Uh, we're well aware of uh, the, the government's new directives there. And uh, we're very glad. We're very much looking forward to it. Uh, things will look different. Um, obviously, that's going to be part of being safe and keeping compliant with the government. Um, but we're so keen, and hopefully you are too, to gather together soon. Uh, we're going to get into God's Word together, uh, so would you pray with me? Yeah, dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us, and you speak clearly, and you speak truly through your Word, and I pray, Lord, that it would be your Word that speaks this morning, uh, that the Holy Spirit would, would take the words of Scripture and apply them to our hearts, in ways that are challenging and encouraging and just what we need to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know when you're talking with someone and you're just having a normal conversation and then they just say something that is totally out of left field. Have you had that experience before? You know, you, you might just be talking about the weekend and, and what you did and then they just, it's just like a curveball comes out of nowhere. Normal conversation and suddenly it's like, I wonder what the Spice Girls are up to these days. Gee, I, uh, I wonder if birds have dreams. So, I'm going to get a tattoo. And that's not me, by the way. That's just an illustration. <laughs> uh, mums are great at this. Or maybe it's just my mum. You think you know where the conversation's going. And then she just throws something in there that you did not see coming. And you're left wondering, you know, did their brain just misfire or am I really missing something here? 
And you'd be forgiven for thinking that maybe that's what's happened with Jesus in today's passage because he's been going through uh, arguing with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Israelites, and uh, he's been dismantling the logic of their assumptions about him, showing that they've been believing and thinking the wrong thing. And he's, he's been doing it kind of like an expert lawyer, hasn't he? He's been taking their reasons and their thinking and taking it all apart. And then... All of a sudden, what feels like totally out of left field, he starts talking about demons in the desert. Yeah, there's a demon that's come out of a person and, and now it's wandering through the wilderness. And then it comes back with seven other demons. And there's talk of empty houses and wicked generations. It all just feels kind of out of left field. What is Jesus talking about here? Why does he suddenly start talking about demons and spirits? Well, today, that's exactly what we're going to figure out. If you're confused about this part of the Bible, then by the end of today's sermon, you'll have a clear answer on what Jesus is talking about here. If you're someone who's curious about things like demons and spirits and how this all works, then if this has piqued your interest, there'll be a clear answer to that as well by the end of today's message. And if you're someone who's heard all this and you're thinking, I just don't get how this is relevant, well, there'll be a clear answer for that as well. So jump in with me to Matthew chapter 12, and we're coming in at verse 38. Oh, sorry, actually, we'll come in a bit later. At verse 43, that's kind of where this, this weird part begins. So Matthew chapter 12, Verse 43, this is kind of the verse where things take a left-hand turn. And it's worth just trying to get our bearings first. Uh, Jesus has been arguing with the Pharisees, uh, as I said. And do you remember what started their argument? This was last week. Do you remember what started their argument? What started their argument was actually a man who came along and Jesus healed him from demonic oppression. Take a look back at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And it's this miracle that actually leads to the big argument, right? Because the Pharisees then accused Jesus of doing this miracle by satanic power. And then Jesus then dismantles their whole assumptions and thinking as we saw last week. And now in verse 43, he actually returns back to the very thing that set off the whole argument. So verse 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. See, he's talking about the same man perhaps in verse 22. And we can imagine this guy who was there back at the start of the story now standing before Jesus with the Pharisees and all of the crowds, right? He's no longer blind, no longer mute, free of demonic oppression. And let me just give you one way of perhaps reading what Jesus says next, the story that he tells next. Here's one way of viewing this scene. It's like Jesus looks at this man who's been freed from this demonic oppression and then he opens a window into spiritual reality. Right? This is just one way of reading the scene. And it's a bit like 
uh, that scene at the end of The Matrix, if you've seen The Matrix, when Neo is, is about to fight the two agents in that narrow corridor, like he's been killed, he's come back to life, he's, he's just about to fight them, and he doesn't just see the agents standing there and the physical walls and the doors and all that, he sees everything in zeros and ones, like all this coding. He actually sees behind the physical veneer of the matrix and into reality as it really is. And so we might imagine that Jesus is doing something like that here. Here's the man who's been freed from a demonic oppression and then he opens the door to see behind the physical world into reality as it really is, spiritual reality. And here's perhaps in this reading what he sees. He sees that there's a demon who has like gone out of this man, like it was possessing this man and now it's gone out and now it's wandering around in the wilderness and then it sort of gets bored out there and it decides, well, I'm going to come back and see if the man is still fair game. And it finds that the man indeed is ready to be possessed again. And so it brings seven of its mates, seven other spirits, and they come and they all possess the man. That's one way of reading what's happening here. Like Jesus is pulling the curtains back, opening the window, and this is what spiritual reality looks like. And because now there are these seven demons uh, on top of the original one possessing this man, then verse 45, the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, if this is what the through the window looks like if this is what spiritual reality really is then according to this reading demons are kind of wandering around looking to possess people if they're not defending themselves properly because jesus describes this man like he's an empty house it's undefended so unless you defend yourself properly then you are at risk of being possessed by demons and if that's how we read this story then quite rightly, we'd be on edge, wouldn't we? We'd be nervous. You know, hold on, does that mean I'm in danger like this man? Does that mean that a demon can come and possess me? Maybe even multiple demons could come and possess me. What do I have to do to protect myself? Have you ever had a worry like that? Or do you know someone who has a worry like that? I was actually watching a video this week about a woman who thought that she was suffering under something called a generational curse. Uh, maybe you've heard of something like this before, a generational curse. Uh, she believed that because her father had been involved with the Masons, uh, with occult practices, that that had passed down a curse from him down to her. And the reason she believed that was because she said she had uh, just terrible bad luck. So terrible bad luck in relationships, they all ended up toxic. Terrible bad luck with her finances, uh, she was just always in financial hardship. Terrible bad luck with her jobs, she just couldn't hold anything. Terrible bad luck with sin, uh, she would just always be going into things that she shouldn't. And she attributed this to demonic oppression that had occurred generationally. It's like there was a curse on her family line because her father had sort of been doing this deal with demons. And she was afraid. She was deeply worried. Have you had a worry like that? Do you know someone who has a worry like that? I actually remember a friend coming to me once saying that he felt like a, a bad presence in a room of his house. 
Um, and uh, every time he went near the door, he felt like there was some sort of evil thing there that was haunting him. He suspected it was demonic. And uh, being a pastor, he asked if I would pray to release the demonic influence from this room. Have you had a worry like that? And often this is what people kind of think of when they think of demonic things, right? If we think about what is spiritual reality, well, it's this, this place where demons are wandering around, potentially cursing people, potentially haunting places, uh, potentially infecting objects, uh, certain books, certain things. Uh, and, and how do you deal with it? How do you deal with these demons? Well, how people sometimes answer that is they say, well, you've got to do a certain thing to protect yourself. You've got to put oil on your window sills to keep the demons out of that room. Uh, you've got to plead the blood of Jesus Christ over yourself, over your loved ones, over your house. Uh, you've got to hold up a Bible. You've got to quote a certain verse. You've got to pray a certain prayer of deliverance. Uh, this is the way in which you protect yourself. And these are very real fears, okay? These are very real fears. After all, demons do exist and they are set against God and his people. But is this the picture that Jesus has in mind when he describes for us spiritual reality? Is it a spiritual reality where demons are roaming around trying to possess people? and possess rooms, and possess objects, and possess and curse family lines? Is that the spiritual reality that Jesus is trying to get us to picture? Well, I think certainly Jesus is trying to give us a picture of spiritual reality, but it's a different spiritual reality. Now, why do I say that? Because despite it feeling like Jesus is actually coming out of left field with this story, he's really not. It's actually very connected to the conversation that he's been having with the Pharisees. And it's very connected to what comes after the story that he tells as well. And so I wonder if you could quickly look at me with what Jesus actually says before he tells this story and after he tells this story. So before this story, jump back to verse 38 with me. Verse 38. Before this story, who's Jesus talking to? Can you see? It's the Pharisees. Right? They've come to him after this big conversation where they've accused him of being satanic. He's showed them that he's not. He's actually the son of God who's come to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And, uh, and then in verse 38, look at what the Pharisees ask him. Take a look. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Give us some evidence, some proof that you're really the son of God. And... <laughs> You can almost hear the disciples just groaning in unison, can't you? This is, this is just a real face palm moment because, you know, what more do they need? They've just seen Jesus release this dude from demonic oppression, let alone all the other miracles that we've seen in Matthew's gospel so far. You know, he's walked on water, uh, rather, he, sorry, he's calmed a storm, uh, he's healed people, he's taught with authority, he's even raised a, a girl from the dead by this point in Matthew's gospel. Uh, they've seen more than enough. And so Jesus replies saying, no, I will not give you a sign. Verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, 
but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just notice what he calls them. He calls them evil. Uh, they, they don't have pure motives. Uh, they are wicked. They are not seeking, in fact, to submit to God. Um, they are seeking to uh, accuse Jesus and build their own case. And what else does he call him? He calls them adulterous. This is a, a phrase that's often used across the Old Testament to describe Israel, uh, particularly in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, it's referring to Israel being unfaithful to God. Uh, they're not actually seeking to serve him and trust him. They're seeking to follow other gods and follow other things. So the characterization of the Pharisees here is evil and adulterous. They're not seeking God. And they won't even accept the ultimate sign, which is what Jesus is talking about with the sign of the prophet Jonah. That just as Jonah was three days in the belly of a fish, Jesus will be three days in the heart of the earth, uh, so-called the, the tomb in which he's buried. Uh, he will be there for three days and then he will rise again. This is the ultimate sign proving that Jesus is the Son of God, that, that he does fulfill the whole sweep of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. This is actually the one who's come to save people. He's come to bring forgiveness for sin through his death on the cross. He proves it by dying on the cross and then rising again. This is the ultimate sign. But the Pharisees still won't even accept that because they're evil and adulterous. And it's true of many of the crowds watching on as well. Uh, while the Pharisees outright reject him, many of the crowd just ignore him. Now, how might that help us understand the story about demons in verse 43 to 45? What's Jesus trying to help us see about the Pharisees and the crowds? What's he trying to get us to understand about spiritual reality? Well, before we answer that question, come after the story. Come down to verse 48. Uh, so rather, sorry, verse 46. Uh, while Jesus talks about the demons, his family turns up. So there's his mother Mary, his younger brothers, and they demand to speak to him. And then we come to verse 48, and Jesus actually turns their request around. He replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, he's not saying that flesh and blood family are unimportant. You might remember at the end of John's gospel, uh, Jesus makes sure that his mother is looked after after his death. Uh, and so he's not saying that flesh and blood family are unimportant, but he's saying, in fact, that uh, the spiritual reality of family is even more important, more important than flesh and blood family, that we can actually be part of God's family, part of God's kingdom. We can be children of God. How? Well, we're marked as children of God. We are identified as part of his family if we are the people who are doing the Father's will. That's really crucial to understand. We are marked as people who are part of God's family if we are doing the Father's will will and we know that the father's will for us firstly and foremostly is to believe in his son jesus take a look with me at john chapter 6 verse 40 hear these words for this is the will of my father says jesus 
that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, I've actually just started memorizing this verse with uh, the kids here at church. Uh, we've been doing it through the uh, kids' videos that I've been producing. It's such a really uh, good verse to, to memorize because um, it really summarizes what is God's will for us. What is his will? It's that we would believe in his son, Jesus. Believe that he went to the cross to pay for our judgment, the judgment we deserve to take our sin upon himself and then rise from the dead, showing himself to be the son of God. And it's to believe that he's done that so that we can have eternal life. The father's will for us is to believe in his son and then having believed, to follow his son who perfectly reveals the way that the father wants us to live both in his words and in his life now this is what marks someone as part of god's family part of god's kingdom is that they believe in the son and follow the son now is that what the pharisees are doing is that what the crowds are doing is that what the jews in jesus time are doing are they turning from sin and trusting in jesus are they seeking the Father's will and, and following Jesus and his words? No. No, of course not. And there we have the context. Before the story about demons, we see an example of people who are actually outside of God's kingdom. They think they're inside, but they're outside because they're still rejecting Jesus. They're not trusting him. They're not following him. And then after the story, we see an example of people who are inside the kingdom, who are part of God's family, his disciples, because they are trusting Jesus and following him. They are doing the Father's will. With that in mind, here's how we can understand Jesus' story about demons. It sits in the middle of this sandwich, right? It's like the, the conversation with the Pharisees is one piece of bread. The conversation about family is another piece of bread. And then we have the meat in the middle, this stuff about demons. And we want to understand the whole thing together. And so here's how we can understand it. It is indeed about spiritual reality. But not a reality where demons are roaming around, constantly threatening to possess objects and rooms and family lines and even people. Jesus actually shows us the spiritual reality of rejecting him. What does it look like to reject Jesus? What does it mean for that person? See, this isn't so much a manual or a, a workbook, an instruction book, uh, about how to understand demons and avoid them. This is actually more like a magnifying glass that's held up to the spiritual condition of those who reject Jesus. Now, at the same time, don't write off the demonic stuff here. Uh, Jesus is talking about very real things when he talks about demons. Satan certainly is at work and he's work at work in the world today. But perhaps not in the way that some might fear. He's working in a way that's often more subtle. He's working to try and make people reject Jesus and reject the Father's will. The very thing that Jesus has been describing before and after this story. How does he do that? Come over with me to Ephesians chapter 2. 
the main way that Satan works is actually through the ways of the world, the culture around us, and the sinful nature within us. Take a look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. And this passage actually describes the spiritual condition of every single one of us if we don't trust Jesus. Here's what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Just notice what it says straight away. First verse comes right out and says it. Without Christ, we are dead. We are dead in our sins, our rebellion against God. And this is the sin in which we once walked. Doing what? The sin in which we once walked, following the course of this world. So following the values, the thinking, the attitudes, the ideologies of the world around us. This is what it looks like to be dead in sin. It's following the ways of the world rather than the Father's will. But then look at the next part. In choosing to walk in sin and the ways of the world, who are we really following? What's it say? We are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is Satan. It's actually describing Satan. Satan is the one we're really following if we choose to reject the Father's will. So picture it like this, right? Imagine that Satan is like a fisherman. So here he is with his fishing line and he drops his line into the water. The hook is like the ways of the world. This is how he catches people. It's using the ways of the world. And the bait is our sinful nature. This is what actually attracts us to the ways of the world. It's the sinful nature within us that wants to go against God. And so we might follow our sinful nature in embracing the ways of the world, but in so doing, we're actually hooked on Satan's line. He is the one that we're actually following. Now, obviously, this doesn't capture everything, right? One illustration can't do that because Satan isn't just waiting there with a line. He's more aggressive than that. He's more on the offense than that. And sometimes he does target some people more than others, particularly those who are deciding to really follow Christ, right? So there's some things that this illustration doesn't capture, but it does capture the normal way in which the scriptures describe how Satan works. He works through the ways of the world trying to ensnare us by leveraging our sinful nature. So what does it look like to have Satan working within us? It looks like taking the bait. It's when we follow the ways of the world around us, as opposed to God's will, and we say, hey, that looks pretty good. And then we give in to the sinful nature within us. And if that's us, then verse 3 actually describes us quite well. It means that we live in the passions of our flesh, the sinful nature, carrying out the desires of the body and mind so they're not just satan's desires that he puts in us they're our desires we're responsible for them and we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind uh, this is what it actually looks like to be controlled oppressed driven by satan it's following the passions of our sinful nature hooked as it were by the ways of the world and dragged further and further away from god towards his righteous wrath and judgment. This is how Satan works, generally speaking. And so come back to the story that Jesus tells. We'll try to make sense of this scene now with all of this in mind. Verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, 
It passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Now, what does Satan want to do? Is he content to leave people alone and let them just come closer to trusting Jesus and doing the Father's will? And no, of course not. Uh, evil's intention is always to enlarge itself. As we saw last week, uh, Jesus has put Satan on the ropes with every miracle in the Gospels, and then he's, he delivers the knockout punch at his death on the cross and his resurrection. But Satan is still stumbling around. He's still trying to fight, even though the fight is over. He is always trying to gain more ground. He's always trying to enlarge his influence. And so even though Jesus has disarmed Satan at the cross and his defeat is certain, he's still prowling around, seeing who he might devour. He still has his line in the water. He is not content, as it were, to merely wander the wilderness. And so in verse 44, we have a picture of the person who's in danger of Satan's threats, who's in danger of following the ways of the world and succumbing to their sinful nature and so falling for Satan's trap. This person is like a house that is empty, swept and put in order. You know, if you leave a, a house empty for too long, uh, it doesn't tend to stay in its pristine condition, does it? Uh, just ask any mother who has to look after children at home during the day. Uh, if they don't do any cleaning during the day, the house starts to look like a wreck. <laughs> or if you say, go on a holiday and ha don't have someone house sitting for you, what tends to happen? Well, if you're gone for a week, then, you know, a bit of a smell might build up. What if you were gone for some months? What if you were gone for six months or a year? What would you see happen to that house? Well, you would see cockroaches start to move in. You see spider webs start to fill the corners. If it starts to rain and there's a, a gap in the roof tiles, well, the water might seep in. You might see mold begin to develop. If it really starts going on, then people might notice that you're not at home. You might have people break in and steal. You might even have a squatter move in. This is just a, a picture. It's a metaphor of how Jesus uh, wants to picture someone who is rejecting him. It's no good just to have your problems fixed on the surface without receiving Jesus, without receiving him as Lord and as Savior. You know, the Pharisees want to see a sign, right? That's their big problem. They want to see a sign. Uh, the crowds around, they want healing. They want Jesus to come and to overthrow the Romans, right? Overthrow the oppressive Roman government and give the land back to Israel. They want their problems fixed. It's no good if those problems are fixed without them receiving Jesus as the Messiah. They would just be like an empty house, clearing out the bad stuff, but without replacing it with what needs to be inside, which is Jesus. Which is exactly the picture that the story gives us at the end. If you leave the house empty, it falls into worse hands. Verse 45, the last state of this person is worse than the first. With all of their problems fixed, they're still further away from Jesus than ever before. We actually see this across the Gospel of Matthew, right? The crowds, the Pharisees who don't actually receive Jesus as the Messiah, even after he's performed so many signs and healings and helped them in lots of ways and taught them lots of good things, what do they do? Well, their tension, their hostility against him just grows. 
it grows from um, just sort of ignoring to then outright rejecting and then to arresting and betraying and ultimately to murdering. This is what happens. Even if someone's life gets cleaned up, if they don't have Jesus, they only grow more hostile to God. They only want to reject him more. And we see this today as well. Even if someone has a significant spiritual experience, just like this man who was delivered from demonic oppression, right? Even if someone has a significant spiritual experience or manages to see improvement in their life, well, unless they receive Jesus, they're going to end up further away from him than ever before. Sadly, uh, one woman that I knew growing up is, is exactly like this. Um, she's someone who had what she believed were significant spiritual experiences across her teenage years. Uh, she felt close to God when she sang worship songs. Uh, she experienced some growth as she read the Bible. Uh, she felt really happy when she went to church. But in the course of time, it became clear that in a number of areas of her life, uh, she wasn't submitting to Jesus at all and, and didn't appear to want to. And so when some people pointed this out to her, she ran a mile. Uh, she didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And uh, unfortunately, there's very little evidence that she knows Jesus today. She may have had some significant spiritual experiences, but she probably hadn't received Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus is warning us about in this story. That This is the way Satan works. Um, I'm reminded of other people I've known who've seen moral improvement in their life without really knowing Jesus. Uh, there's one friend that I've got, uh, none of you guys actually know him, but um, uh, he's a guy who uh, is really into a fellow called Jordan Peterson. Don't know if you've heard of him before. Uh, he's quite a popular sort of commentator and writer at the moment. Uh, he's not a Christian but he often talks about biblical things. So sometimes he quotes the Bible. He talks about Judeo-Christian concepts. And, uh, and so this guy, my friend, is really into Jordan Peterson. And um, when him and I talk about Jesus and talk about Christianity and the Bible, uh, he says to me, oh, we agree on so many things. Oh, we basically believe the same thing, don't we, Dan? Because really he's, he's talking about the stuff in the Bible that Jordan Peterson has picked up. And he goes, oh, yeah, if that's what the Bible is, then I agree. And he's actually seen some real difference in his life. He's, he's improved morally as a result of all this stuff. But when we talk about, hey, do you know Jesus personally? Do you trust him? Are you forgiven? Do you, do you know the Lord through Jesus? Are you following him? Oh, I don't need any of that. So in a sense, he would have been better off never having read the Jordan Peterson stuff. Now, there's some useful things that he says, right? But he would have been better off not having encountered a little bit of the Bible without Jesus, right? Because he's got just a little bit and convinced, he's convinced that he knows the lot. Without Jesus, even with great moral improvement that's come from biblical concepts, he is worse off now than he was before. This is the way that Satan works. He wants to draw us away from trusting in and following Jesus alone. The same is true for people who come to church today and maybe love the sense of fellowship or the singing or the, the preaching, but they don't actually know Jesus for themselves. That person, once again, is probably worse off because they're deluded into thinking that their church attendance and their good experience at church is what marks them as a Christian. 
And this is why Jesus says that if the house stays empty, we're worse off than before. People in these situations are falling for Satan's bait. He's got them hook, line and sinker. And unfortunately for the Pharisees and many in the crowd, this picture of being aligned with Satan describes their spiritual condition perfectly. Which is why he ends in verse 45. And this is a key verse for seeing that this is not just a, a, a window into spiritual reality with demons roaming around. This is more of a parable. Because in verse 45, he ends by saying, so it will also be with this evil generation. Who's he really talking about? He's really talking about the Pharisees. He's really talking about the Israelites, this evil, adulterous generation. This is describing them and their spiritual condition. This is the spiritual reality of what it means to reject Jesus. And it's true for anyone today who goes on rejecting Jesus as well. So, do you need to be scared of demons? Do you need to be afraid that they're infecting certain objects in your home or haunting certain rooms or cursing your family line or that you're at risk of possession? Do you need to put oil on your windowsills or pray a prayer of deliverance? Uh, do you need to plead the blood of Jesus over a space in your home? Do you need to protect yourself from wandering demons? Well, no, not really. Not in the way that perhaps you might fear. Thankfully, it's, it's not a fear that you actually have to hold on to. Uh, and you don't need to do any special rituals to stay protected. Uh, because this isn't the kind of spiritual reality that Jesus describes. Uh, how can you be safe from Satan and his attacks? How can you keep your head even when Satan chooses to attack you? Here's how. Trust Jesus. Submit, Jesus, submit to Jesus, keep following him. This is how you make yourself safe from demonic oppression. Take a look at James chapter 4, verse 7. It says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, some people take that second half and pull it away from the first half. They go, resist the devil. Oh, that means I've got to do all these special things. And that's how I make him flee. But no, take a look what the first half says. Submit yourselves there, therefore, to God. This is how we resist the devil and how he flees from us. We submit ourselves to God by trusting in Jesus and following Jesus. This is the Father's will. Now, if you do that, then Satan has no real power over you. He may still attack you. He may still seek to tempt you. He may still target you, right? But ultimately, he can't do any real damage because his ultimate weapon, remember, is that hook with the bait on it. And by submitting to God, trusting Jesus, following Jesus, you're saying, I'm not going anywhere near that bait or that hook. I don't want to follow the ways of the world and I don't want to succumb to the sinful nature. I want to trust Jesus and follow Jesus. And you've just disarmed Satan from his ultimate way of attacking. This is how you can be safe from Satan. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so the question for each of us as we come face to face with true spiritual reality is this. 
Are you overcoming Satan or is Satan overcoming you? And you can phrase that question in another way. Are you rejecting Jesus or are you trusting and following Jesus? Now, if you do trust Jesus today and you are following him actively, then look, praise God. That's very, very good news. And you know that you don't need to have any rational fear of Satan. Right? Be alert to his schemes. Be alert. He can still attack, but you don't need to be alarmed. Be alert to his schemes without being alarmed. You don't need to live in fear. Know that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And a couple of things you might want to do just to help reinforce that to yourself is that you might want to memorize James 4 verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's a really good verse to memorize because if you're in a moment where um, you're really tempted to sin, you're really tempted to follow the ways of the world, or you feel as though there is some kind of satanic sort of targeting or attack on you, you can say, well, how do I actually resist the devil? Submit to God. As I submit to God, then I am resisting the devil and he will flee from me. So memorizing James 4, 7 might be a helpful thing to do. I actually know one friend who has a verse like this taped onto his computer monitor because this is one area of his life where he's really prone to sin. And so he sort of just has this masking tape next to his webcam that says James 4, verse 7. You might want to do something like that in a, a place in your home or, or um, in a place where you're going to be reminded, not because the masking tape wards off demons, but because the truth of uh, the Bible, holding to the truth of the Bible, following Jesus, is what makes Satan flee. Now, another thing you might want to do is uh, if you're someone who's really struggling with a certain sin at the moment, you're hearing this and you're going, yeah, I'm, I'm not actually submitting to God. I'm not actually following Jesus in this area of my life. Well, uh, it may be that Satan is actually attacking you. Now, you're responsible for your actions, all right? Um, you're responsible for what you're choosing to do. You're responsible for taking the bait. But there is satanic drive and attack behind that. And so how can you be free from that? Resist the devil by submitting to God. And one thing you might want to do with that is go and confess your sin to a brother or sister. If you're a guy, go and confess to a brother. If you're a girl, go and confess to a sister. Uh, and ask for their prayer and support in that. Ask for them to help encourage you and spur you on and even keep you accountable so that you can have victory over that sin. It's not going to come by driving out a demon it's not going to come by praying a special prayer with special words. Uh, and if you do want to pray a, a particular prayer, go ahead and do it. Like, it can be very helpful. I have at different points, but um, it actually comes by the follow through, by trusting in Jesus and being empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow him. So confess your sin to one another and you might find that you get the support and encouragement you need to actually do that. Now, as I described the person who is um, trusting Jesus and following Jesus, you might actually be identifying that that's not you this morning. Maybe as you've heard Jesus define true spiritual reality, uh, you're seeing your condition in a different way than you used to. And so maybe you're a bit like the girl I knew growing up who's had some significant spiritual experiences but doesn't actually know Jesus for herself. Or maybe you're like the other friend of mine who's learnt some stuff from the Bible but still kind of rejects Jesus as the Son of God. 
Or maybe you're someone who loves church and looks forward to gathering again, which is great, um, but you're not actually living to seek the Father's will. Or you call yourself a Christian, but you're so beleaguered by sin that you keep committing and hiding that you don't know if you really are a Christian at all. Look, if this is you, I want you to hear two things from Jesus. And these are pretty well straight from the passage today. Here's the first thing that I want you to hear. You are not part of God's kingdom. You are not part of God's family as it currently stands. And therefore you are in danger. You are not safe. As it currently stands, you are like the fish on the hook who is giving into the sinful nature and the ways of the world. And Satan has you. It's not like he possesses you on the inside, but he has you. That's the first thing I want you to hear. Don't delude yourself into thinking that things are fine. According to Jesus, they are not. You are in serious danger. But I want you to hear a second thing. It's an invitation. Jesus invites you to come and be part of God's family. How? By turning your back on sin and saying, I'm now going to come and trust Jesus. This is the Father's will. It's that we trust Jesus for our forgiveness of all of our sin and then begin to follow him. We turn our backs on Satan and say, no, I'm now going to follow Christ and trust Christ. And if that's you, you can do that this morning. You can have that freedom from sin and the world and Satan this morning by trusting in Christ and choosing to follow him. If that's something that you're interested in seeking out, uh, one of us would love to have a chat with you or you could call another Christian friend that you know. Um, but that is something that you can choose to do today. You can have that freedom. And so let's finish our time together now by praying. Lord God, um, we know that there is spiritual reality uh, and it can be a scary thing. Uh, we pray, Lord, that this morning people would be delivered from fears that they hold that they don't need to hold and that um, people would see a, a clear way of resisting Satan and that we would uh, be able to trust in Christ and follow him with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now pass it back over to Rob. Thanks, Dan.